Hi there, and welcome to the Press Gallery, the Edmonton Journal's politics podcast, the Blue Ribbon Panel Edition. It's Friday, May 10th, 2019, and my name is Sarah O'Donnell. I'm the news editor here at the Journal. I am here in our newsroom studio with Keith Geron, provincial affairs reporter. Hi, how's it going? Good, very well, thank you. Lovely Friday morning. It Prime is, Minister's it in is. town. It's exciting. Uh, if you are into politics, which I am, uh, Claire Clancy, provincial affairs reporter. Hello, good morning. Good morning. And uh, Dave Breckenridge, managing editor and host of the 103 podcast. Oh, that, that other thing, right. Good morning. Good morning. <laughs> Good morning. Yes. We're all very on our game today. You can tell Emma Graney, our uh, regular host of the Press Gallery, is on some well-deserved time off. We're expecting her back next week, though. So I'll do my very best to fill in in what has been a bit of a lull after, you know, kind of the intense frenzy of the past few weeks in Alberta politics. I think it's fair to say that this week was a little bit quieter, but I think there's some stuff that we can dig into. So we are going to talk about the blue ribbon panel that Premier Jason Kenney appointed. We want to talk a little bit about the Chicago principles, what they are and why that might be of interest to people on campuses across Alberta under a new UCP government. And then we also want to talk about the Fildebrandt farewell. Uh, Former Freedom Conservative Party uh, leader Derek Fildebrandt said adieu to provincial politics, and we'll just talk a little bit about that at the end. And so why don't we just jump in with with what I think was the biggest political story of the week in terms of potential implications, and that is the Blue Ribbon Panel. Claire, I want to lay that out for us. What what did Jason Kenney mean when he introduced a Blue Ribbon Panel? Yeah, so basically we know now that there's going to be a fall budget from the UCP, um, but Premier Jason Kenney says that in order to inform what's going to be in that budget, he has announced a Blue Ribbon Panel with various experts, notably former Saskatchewan Finance Minister Janice McKinnon, who's going to be chair of the committee, and Mike Percy, who's a former Liberal MLA and also um, a U of A uh, former dean of the business school there, I believe. Um, And they will be uh, analyzing, I guess, Alberta finances and deciding, uh, making recommendations to Jason Kenney about his budget. Uh, There are a few really important things to note about this, though, is that what we learned was that they won't be looking at all about the revenue side of things, which means there will be no advice related to tax. Instead, it's going to be how do we cut spending in order to uh, lower Alberta's uh, debt and deficit. And so that's really what the focus of the panel is going to be. As we heard throughout the campaign, Jason Kenney said um, education and healthcare budgets will be frozen. He never said that there would be cuts. In fact, he he promised there wouldn't be significant cuts to frontline services. Um, and I think that is kind of the concern that people have is that going into a budget, will we see massive cuts? Um, the NDP obviously is saying we will, but there's no evidence to that yet. Dave, you and I have seen a few uh, finance panels in our day. How did the announcement about this one strike you compared to uh, previous governments looks looks into our finances? I mean, it makes sense for any government really to to want to have a bit of an outside view to, to take experts on uh, finance files and and have a look through how government operates. It's it's nothing controversial to have. Someone like a Janice McKinnon or someone like a Mike Percy or someone like a Dave Mowat, former uh, CEO of ATB, to bring them in and to say like, okay, this is this is what we spend money on. Are we getting good value for money? Are we? You know, how can we uh, approach 
potentially reducing the budget, reducing debt, um, and and take Alberta forward. So I don't. There's all this talk uh, from the NDPO. Oh, this is just going to lead to cuts. All these, you know, the the same stuff we heard during the election campaign. And obviously, Albertans weren't buying it during the campaign. So I don't know how much Albertans will buy it now. But the idea that um, the government would want to have a look see is not a bad thing, and it's something that I, I think should happen in good times or bad. And I've seen other people uh, in the social media echo chamber uh, echo those thoughts as well. I mean, even people who aren't fans of Jason Kenney, I'm seeing saying, yeah, you know, this is perfectly normal thing for governments to do. And I think what was interesting about that news conference was that Janice McKinnon spoke about her experience in Saskatchewan during the 1990s. There were some really significant things that happened during that time um, in order to get that province out of its debt hole. And that included um, shutting down 52 rural hospitals. But she basically said, we need to act now as a province in Alberta in order to prevent what she called difficult choices later on. And so that's kind of the narrative that the UCP is using here. Hmm. Keith, yeah. you seem to be impressed with the panel. I don't know if impressed <laughs> is the right yeah, no, word. That's, that is, it is. It's an impressive group. Uh, this is a group with a, a ton of experience in government services, in finance, in economic policy. Uh, there's a lot of valuable advice here. Jay Ramatar is on it. He's been a deputy minister of pretty much every department in Alberta. There's Kim Henderson, who's been, uh, a, a, sorry, a deputy minister, uh, I should say, for Jay Ramatar. And and Kim Henderson, same thing, de- deputy minister in, in British Columbia in a number of important portfolios, right? It's interesting, though. That because any of any one of them could serve as chair of the panel, it's interesting that Jason Kenney chose Janice McKinnon, right? And there's a political reason for it. He can say to anyone, any of his critics, she is a former NDP, right? And that gives him some political cover. The truth is, though, her policies aren't really uh, aligned with today's NDP, right? As Claire mentioned, when she was finance minister in Saskatchewan, she closed a bunch of hospitals. Uh, Her work recently has been with some right-of-center academics and experts, the Fraser Institute, for example. She had a report out a couple of years ago that praised Saskatchewan's use of private health care. And she had a report with Jack Mintz last year or two years ago calling for wage rollbacks in Alberta, or at least wage restraint in Alberta, uh, as well as a bunch of other uh, public service cuts. So uh, that is uh, that is more of a conservative viewpoint. But Jason Kenney can go back to his critics and say, hey, I got one of yours. I got an NDP to come on and say this stuff. So what, how can you possibly criticize the the recommendations of this panel, which seem to be designed uh, at this point, the panel seems to be designed and its mandate seems to be designed to get a specific outcome that spending has to be has to be restrained. Well, and that that speaks to, I think, w- the one problem with the panel in general, it, not that spending has to be restrained, but they're going toward a specific outcome. Like yes. what would happen if they came forward and said, well, why do we have a Catholic in a public school board? Maybe you could find savings there. Would the Jason Kenney government go through with it? What if the panel came forward and said, well, why are you giving money to uh, students in private and charter schools at X percent of what the public system gets. Why don't you take that down? Would Jason Kenny? Would a Jason Kenny government go through with it, or are there predetermined outcomes that says you can't touch this, you can't touch that? I don't know, and we haven't seen a detailed uh, outline of of what they're being asked to do. But you know, you have to wonder: are some of 
their priorities already set in advance. Yeah. Um, and Finance Minister Travis Toe said that um, they will make the report public. So that's interesting. After it's presented to government by August 15th is the deadline. Yeah, so it's coming up, but yeah, th- there is a very clear mandate. The fact that they can't even touch the, uh, you know, the the revenue side of the equation. And is, let's talk about that because yeah. can you really have a conversation in Alberta where so much of the budget is predicated on the price of, you know, oil or you know, once upon a time, natural gas? Can you really have a practical conversation about the budget without talking about the revenue side? I don't think you can. I, I think it's folly to do that. I, I, in the column I wrote this week sort of compared it to somebody trying to play a golf course with half the clubs in their bag, right? It's, it doesn't tend to lead to a, a successful round if you don't have all the tools at your disposal. And we've got a group here that certainly has expertise on revenue, on taxes. Janice McKinnon in Saskatchewan, they raised the provincial sales tax when she was there, among other revenue uh, revenue measures that uh, Jason Kenney didn't want to talk about on Monday when he introduced this panel. But he spent the campaign talking about how Alberta's spending was too high and that the debt was going up. That was the message to Albertans. And so that is what he is focused on right now. And that's why he he doesn't want to talk about the revenue side right now. He doesn't want to talk about taxes or diversification or royalties or any of those things that should be used as part of the overall strategy to get Alberta back to a balanced budget. Why would so many smart people be willing to sit on a panel where it feels like one hand may be tied behind their back? What's the benefit of that? Claire, did any of the people appointed to the panel talk about why they were willing to go through this exercise on behalf of the new government? Not really. I think that it was so it, the whole narrative was constructed around like we need to act now. And we did ask Kenny, why is it that the panel can't look at um, the tax side of things? And he said, because I just ran an election campaign where I promised not to touch taxes. And so or unless it was cutting them, obviously. Um, so he said, that's the promise we made and we'll keep to it. He did say that in 2021 and 2022, he's planning to announce a separate panel that will look at uh, the tax structure for Alberta. So it'll be basically waiting a few years um, in order to look at that side of things, which I agree is kind of strange when you're trying to introduce a budget in the fall, but we'll see what happens. Well, and Janice McKinnon did answer that question. She basically said, uh, and this is, I think, why Kenny picked her to lead the panel is Alberta shouldn't touch this, this, the revenue side. It sh- taxes are not going to get you to a balanced budget. She specifically said that. She said Alberta has a spending problem. Her eyes popped, she said, when she realized how much spending was going on in Alberta. So that uh, tells me um, that they are uh, – this particular group or at least the leader of this group um, has, has no real interest in, in looking at the revenue side at this, pro- at this point. I'm wondering if the mandate of this panel is one reason why Edmonton Mayor Don Iveson was maybe a little bit more pointed in his remarks than I thought he was going to be in his state of the city address this week. Dave, uh, we we covered that event, and uh, he he's he was diplomatic, but he did go back to that era of the 1990s and austerity that hurt Edmonton so badly. Do you think that that panel was on his mind at all when he made the speech? Possibly was. I mean, I th- I think that he couldn't have made his State of the City speech this week without addressing the new government and the idea that Edmonton doesn't really have a huge presence at the cabinet table because we, uh, you know, Edmonton proper just elected one MLA who is the municipal affairs minister, Casey Madu. Um, 
but there's not a lot of Edmonton influence within that group. And so had he not raised that as part of his State of the City speech, that it would have raised some eyebrows, that I think that he's just trying to address that, you know, Edmonton needs to be kept front of mind for a government that doesn't have a lot of Edmonton representation. I mean, beyond that, the the idea that, yes, Edmonton being the home of uh, the provincial government, uh, the home of the headquarters of uh, Alberta Health Services, the home of, you know, lots of uh, the province's largest university, all of those things. And if, you know, if there are drastic cuts to the public service that can hurt Edmonton on the whole, I think that's something that the mayor needs to keep in mind and that it's not wrong to to remind the premier of that. Well, so the blue ribbon panel was, I'd say, the most concrete thing we saw moving forward. Uh, we added it to our list of what has the UCP government done yeah, so far, an online. actual tangible uh, definitive thing that has happened. There were a few other things that have been floated, talked about a little bit more. You saw the new Environment and Parks Minister, uh, Jason Nixon, talk about the Bighorn proposal, saying that that's not something that they're going to be proceeding with. I believe he said that in an interview with the Canadian press. Um, there was also talk about a, a policy that could influence campus. And our Emma Graney actually wrote the story about that. I wish she was here to tell you about it, but we got Claire here and she can fill us in. I'll distill Emma's excellent work into my own words. Um, yeah, so it is a really interesting uh, situation, I guess. So what's happening is it looks like the UCP government is um, going to direct post-secondary institutions to adopt policies uh, around free speech that are kind of known as the Chicago principles. They were developed at the University of Chicago, um, and there's a lot of concern around these uh these principles because they don't differentiate between hate groups. And some critics would argue they don't differentiate properly between hate groups and other groups trying to speak out on campuses. Um, what's interesting is that it follows a similar move from the Ontario government under Doug Ford. And um, Post Media didn't get an interview after multiple requests with Advanced Education Minister Demetrius Nicolades. I'm very sorry if I'm mispronouncing his last name. Um, but I think that uh, he did he apparently did hail the the principles as the gold standard on free speech and um, that's going to be I think an interesting issue to uh, to watch as it unfolds Keith good policy bad policies <laughs> are you still on the fence about it uh, no pressure my, my first thought was just there's a little hypocrisy here I mean the, the people backing this kind of I would call it a fairly blunt instrument uh, here are se seemingly the same people that kind of lost their minds when David Suzuki got an entirely meaningless degree from the University of Alberta last year or so and thought that the university should have essentially banned him from campus or banned him from having a, a platform. So uh, I, 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 I see this as a, as a bit hypocritical. That said, uh, look, I, I mean, there there is a concern on, on some campuses these days, right? A campus, a university campus should be should have academic freedom. There should be freedom of expression. This should be a place where students go to get their ideas challenged and should be um, should be exposed to a range of, of different philosophies. And I think there is a concern that maybe some campuses have become too unfriendly to certain viewpoints uh, that uh, that are considered um, offensive or certain viewpoints that are considered out of style. And so I, I think there is a, a, a slope there that we need to be careful that we're not uh, not falling down uh, too hard on. 
That said, Chicago principles, I'm not sure this is actually the instrument to take care of this. I don't think it's going to do anything. As we saw in Ontario, um, where this has been applied, a lot of the universities just kind of wrote in a, a bland statement saying they support the principles, but it doesn't really change anything. The students are still going to feel the way they're going to feel. It's still going to be an unfriendly place in some ways for a lot of these viewpoints and speakers that might have these viewpoints. And Canada's hate speech laws uh, essentially prevent uh, people from saying the really offensive stuff that uh, that uh, the Chicago principles uh, would try to allow in some respects. Right, because U.S. speech laws don't translate directly no. to Canada. Dave, you and I both, I think, agree in the largely about the value of free speech. We Journalists talk, do tend we do, to support we do, free speech. We all do. Like, I think that's the general principle. But do you uh, do you think this is a conversation that is worth a UCP government's time? Or are there things that they could be better spending their initial days on? I mean, there's some big issues that the new advanced education minister is going to have to deal with. You know, the NDP had a tuition freeze in place. There was concerns about rising costs. There's concerns about what you charge when it comes to tuition for uh, international students coming in. There's a lot of other um, bigger picture items on university campuses, deferred maintenance at places like the U of A. Those are issues that uh, he's going to have to deal with. That said, the idea uh, around free speech on university campuses is something that that bubbles up every now and then. I remember when I was in Calgary, Ann Coulter was slated to speak at a venue on the University of Calgary campus, and people lost their minds that Ann Coulter was going to be given a platform to speak at the University of Calgary campus. Lots of people don't like Ann Coulter. I'm not a huge fan of Ann Coulter, but that said... We shouldn't be shutting down or trying to shut down people with whom we disagree. Should someone like uh, Jordan Peterson be given a platform or like if a student group wanted to bring Jordan Peterson to the U of A campus to give a talk, should he be allowed? I would argue that, yes, he should, even though I may not agree with everything that he has to say. And these are debates that, that crop up every now and then. And, you know, why? That's I mean, that's that's at the at the base of it. Why do we not want to allow some people to listen to someone else that they may be interested in so long as they're not so long as they're not violating Canada's hate speech laws? Yeah, I think I mean, I do think it raises some issues about um, like when you have certain contentious issues on campuses, uh, like at Queens, when I was doing my undergrad there, there was an issue when people were kind of having a rally related to um, anti-abortion and a lot of women on campus felt like triggered by some of the imagery they were using because it was comparing uh, it's the common um, images used to comparing the Holocaust to uh, to the anti-abortion movement. And things like that do become really contentious issues. In terms of speakers, I think that's that's kind of another it's another way to look at the situation is maybe having um, Canada's hate speech laws do cover certain things, but then there are other issues that maybe there needs to be some type of um, control over in order to make students feel safe on campus. The other part of Emma's story and the other platform or piece of the platform from the UCP that I think is more concerning is this idea that the government would look at um, sort of try to do a link between government subsidies for specific programs and then labor market outcomes. Uh, so essentially that says, you know, we're going to evaluate how much money we put into your program, uh, but if it doesn't uh, have a, an immediate impact on the economy or on jobs, you know, we might reevaluate how much money we're putting into your program. That's not necessarily bad on the surface or it doesn't sound bad on the surface, but you can imagine people in 
philosophy. philosophy. We all go straight to philosophy. There's so much you can do with that <laughs> right. degree, guys. Right. Okay. Right. No. Um, you know, I, no. I would be a little worried if I was in a liberal arts program uh, that perhaps did, you know, there's not a lot of job for philosophers or historians out there, right? Unless you're in academia. Uh, and already those programs, I think, are stretched pretty thin. So, uh, I, I'm a little concerned at the language at some of uh, what's in the, the UCP platform there. We'll see what they actually do. Part of the problem is we haven't had access to the ministers uh, because, and so we haven't been able to ask them about this. They're still getting up to speed. I get that. But it's been really, really tough to get any answers from the Alberta government or the ministers these days. Yeah. And, and it, during cabinet this week, that was an issue for journalists. Um, obviously, it is the first week we get it. But it's uh, yeah, it was frustrating because there were some pretty basic questions that I think people had. Um, that ministers, I'm sure, have been briefed on and would give good answers to, and we weren't able to ask those questions. Um, of the advanced education minister, yeah, I agree with Keith. Some of the questions are around what are going to be the performance indicators for post-secondary institutions um, in terms of funding, right? Is that going to be an issue? And that's a really important, uh, it's a really important question to ask. Well, I, I remember when I was going to go back to school and I was looking at different programs and decided to go to the journalism program at McEwen, one of the things that I noticed was all of these post-secondary institutions were telling me, yeah, 90% of our graduates get jobs in the field. Like the idea that we should be tracking how graduates do in the labor market is not new by any stretch of the imagination. Post-secondary institutions do it routinely. The question is whether you should tie funding to that. And I don't know if that's a, a route that um, a lot of Albertans would want to go down. But the idea that we're trying to see how our post-secondary institutions are performing is a perfectly normal thing you want to do. Because mm -hmm. I think there's the idea that, you know, critical thinking skills can translate to a lot of different of jobs and, and also a building block to to a degree. A bachelor's degree is not the same thing that it used to be in any in any level. So it's a, it's a building block. I the think. best course I took during university was modern British literature. So there you go. <laughs> there you go. Um, well, then going from the campuses and free speech to someone who says we're not going to be hearing a lot more of his speech anymore, we'll quickly turn to Derek Fildebrandt. And I just thought it was worth, you know, talking about the end of his political career, which he has said, because he has ended up being the topic of a lot of press galleries over his relatively short political career, probably been mentioned a disproportionate number of times. So I thought we'd he give has, it one last hurrah. Yeah. And he's just been such an interesting character to watch at the legislature. So I think he'll be missed by me media. What happened, today? what happened this week, Claire, with Phil Durant? Uh, so basically, the he did announce last week that he wasn't going to be leader of the party anymore. Um, but they announced their new interim leader. They're going to have a leadership convention next year. But the new interim leader is a man called David White, who ran in Masquachis-Wetasquin for FCP unsuccessfully. Um, and uh, so he's now taken the mantle from Phil Durant. Um, so we had a press conference with uh, with Derek Fildebrand where he, I'll just read you his final quote, or not final quote, but a quote he said that I really loved. That's at the top of my story. Uh, we asked him what he's doing next. And he said, I've got a young family. I've got a life ahead of me that doesn't involve the colonoscopy of partisan politics and media. So he Ouch. is planning to go into the private sector, it sounds like, and move on. He We also asked him, will we see you running for office? And he said, I will not run for MLA, MP, council mayor or dog catcher. Reeve, he could run for Reeve. He yep. could run for yeah. Reeve. Yeah. Left a few few positions out of that. Yeah. Yeah. But I think he'll be missed because he's like in terms of the 
I can I say the entertainment value of his news conferences? It's yes. been really interesting watching him. A bombastic uh, presence at the legislature, yes. for sure. Yeah. Whether you agree with him politically or not, and I know that many people didn't, and certainly many Albertans didn't, because the Freedom Conservative Party did not fare well at the ballot box. And he was, I think they got 10,000 votes in the election, um, so not many. And uh, we'll see how what the party does, what they try to do to, to build themselves up. But um, yeah, I think it's kind of interesting considering that uh, Derek Fildebrand was a thorn in the side of the UCP for a long time as well, and now he's no longer at the legislature. I also don't entirely believe him that this is the last we're going to hear from him. I think he's his, po- his personality uh, is one of those that does... I think enjoy being in the media spotlight, even though he calls it a colonoscopy. Uh, it's an interesting metaphor there. Uh, so, uh, You're so diplomatic all the time. Uh, I, I, I think we'll see Derek Thildebrand again. In what capacity, I have no idea, but uh, I, he just can't help himself from uh, being on social media or getting into the media or stirring up, stirring the pot a little bit in a partisan way from time to time. And let's not forget, this is a guy who despite being in the public eye for a while, and he was the Alberta director for the Canadian Taxpayers Federation for a couple of years before he made the jump to provincial politics, he's only 33 years old. We've, you know, us in the media, we've, we've known about Derek for a while, but he's still a young guy, especially in political terms. He could, he's got a young family. He could walk away for a while, come back when his kids are older, still be in just his early forties and make a splash on the scene a couple election cycles from now. So I don't know if we've seen the last of him. Maybe he's going to be taking a break. I don't think we'll we'll see with him what we saw with Brian Jean, where Brian Jean left provincial politics after he lost the UCP leadership race, but then was posting on Facebook and announcing surprises and writing position papers and all of that. I don't think we'll see that from Derek right away. I believe him when he says that he wants to spend time with his family, but he's young and he and he is, I think, a, a very political animal uh, and, and we'll see him around again, I'm pretty sure. Well- with that, let's recommend some things that we may want, to, Derek might want to enjoy from he's <laughs> kicking back with his uh, family, our good stuff from the gallery segment. Keith, let's go to you first. Sure. So I'm going to recommend something from our former colleague, Paula Simons. Uh, she's made some posts on Facebook uh, that are explainers about Bill C-69 and Bill, Bill C-48. Uh, the C-69 one in particular is very useful. This is a very dense, very complex bill, and Paula has used her... Her, her columnist skills here to uh, lay out exactly what's in the bills, what the issues are, and some of her thinking behind it. And for those that do not understand uh, that bill, why it's a concern and what's in it, uh, this is a really, really helpful resource and only takes a few minutes to read. Oh, wonderful. Thanks, Keith. Claire, what would you like to recommend? I'm going to recommend a really fun show that I love that I binge watched this week um, called Dead to Me with Christina Applegate. I was looking at that in my in my queue. I it's like, so yeah. good. I really loved it. And I it's just I'm not going to give away any spoilers, but it's just so entertaining. It's kind of a dark comedy um, about a woman who loses her husband. And it's just really, really funny and dark. And I love it. All right. I'm going to recommend something very unfunny. Um, the New York Times had a really great two-part podcast on the Daily, and there's an accompanying news story about the Chinese uh, surveillance state. Uh, they inter- had their tech reporter, Paul Moser, go to China where he was looking at the incredibly elaborate surveillance that has been set up, especially around the Uyghur community and how that is being used. 
and disturbingly how they are marketing that technology to other governments around the world with authoritarian tendencies. And it was terrifying in a way that, you know, all the dystopian movies we've thought we've seen about the future uh, come to life. And it sounds like and uh, the reporter talked about how he could go, he could look around being followed around by secret police, but he could not actually talk to anybody there for fear that, you know, simply the sight of him talking to somebody would immediately put that person on the Chinese government's radar and endanger them. So it was just having to do reporting in that way where you can go and look and see all the cameras, but not actually talk to anybody. Holy smokes. It was a, it was a disturbing piece of uh, journalism, but good. Dave, take us home. I, I'm going to get even more depressing with mine. <laughs> awesome. Um, so I, I listen to a podcast regularly called Criminal, and I haven't had a chance to listen to the latest episode, but I was looking at the show notes to see what the latest episode was about. And it uh, the source material uh, or the inspiration for the episode comes from a Harper's Magazine article that was in their February issue. It's called Going to Extremes, Are Homicides Among the Elderly Acts of Mercy or Malice? And it looks at a couple cases, um, including one where it was a husband and wife. They met each other later in life. And actually, the the husband uh, was gay, and but divorced and didn't really have any successful relationships. And he and this woman who he met, they fell in love, but they weren't physically intimate. Anyway, they get married, and she has a ton of health problems. And um, her health deteriorates to the point that she, she wants to die. And they kind of have this pact. And, and he takes her uh, on like out of her nursing home for a day and, uh, poisons her with medication and then tries to kill himself with the same medication, but he doesn't succeed. And then he's charged. And it just, it looks at kind of what is potentially a growing trend in the U S especially where there are no medical aid and dying laws in states where that's not allowed, where you may start seeing an increase in, uh, couples where the husband it's typically the husband is, is killing his wife. Uh, and it looks at, are these cases where they have an actual pact where he's doing her a favor or he's, uh, just murdering her. And it's a fascinating, but stark and kind of depressing article. Yeah, that it's, a really so inter- it's a really interesting, really interesting read. <laughs> yeah. Wow. Crazy. And the happiest thing in our good stuff recommendations is a show with the title dead in it. It's, <laughs> yeah. uh, we've gone down a dark, dark path. Okay. Well, we'll, we'll try to be a bit more cheery next week, but, uh, we don't have to be. It's about the news. Yeah. Um, well, thank you, uh, Keith, Claire, Dave for coming on the show today and uh, letting me sit in as host. And thank you, uh, everybody for listening. You can find the podcast wherever you get all your favorite podcast items and uh, please don't forget to go online and uh, give us a rating a five star rating if you can please Uh, and recommendations are wonderful it helps our podcast grow and uh, we know that we're going to have a lot more to talk about in coming weeks just uh, a week and a half till the start of the first session of the new UCP government thanks everyone 